Mark chapter 13. Lord, this morning we are grateful to be able to open up your word in this place and to hear from you. And Jesus, you alone have the words of life. You know the beginning from the end. You know how everything is going to unfold. And we live in interesting times. We see all sorts of radical uh, things happening. And yet the Bible is very clear, God, that you are in control and that your coming is soon. I just pray that today as we study your word that You would stir in our hearts, Father, a genuine excitement. Not just an excitement for excitement's sake, but an excitement to be about your business. An excitement that would, um, as we recognize we're in the last days, it would move us to holy living, to radical evangelism, to missionary endeavors, to church planting, to loving people, to seeing people healed and delivered by you. All the things, Jesus, that you accomplish on the cross, we want to be engaged in the fullness of that work. So this morning as we get into your word, show us, as Pastor G um, said earlier, show us where maybe we're falling short a bit, where you've got more for us, where you're calling us into something neat. Thank you, Lord, that you don't need us, but you love to use us. You love to be with us, that you're coming for us soon. Teach us in your word. Move in our hearts to be doers of it now. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in our third week of a uh, eight to ten week series on Bible prophecy because we've encountered in our verse by verse, chapter by chapter study, the book of Mark, Mark chapter 13, which is known as the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus has much to say about the end time scenario. If you haven't been here the last two weeks, you want to get the CDs. Because all these lessons sort of build upon each other, especially from two weeks ago where we laid some real groundwork about what the end times are, what Bible prophecy is, how we're to view it, how we're to live in light of it. I want you to get those CDs if you weren't here. We're going to um, go all the way down to verse 13 today, but let's read the first four verses sort of as review. It says in verse 1, And as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, that is Jesus, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Remember, uh, the disciple was pointing out the temple. And the Jews were very proud of their temple. Herod had renovated it for him. It was tremendous to see, but it was spiritually empty. And we've seen all through the book of Mark, Jesus' assessment of Israel in the first century. They had wonderful religious outward displays, but there was no inward reality. It was a form of religion, but denying the power thereof. With their lips they praised the Lord, but their hearts were far off. And so pointing to this temple, look how great this temple is. Look what we built. God forbid that we would ever do that with this stupid building someday. The Lord would be on our midst and we go, look at our building, Lord. The walls on the sanctuary are slanted. No other church has slanted walls. Aren't we cool? That's kind of what they were doing. And the Lord says in verse 2, Do you see this great building? Not one stone shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. Remember there that Jesus gave the prophecy of the destruction of the second temple. Last week we outlined the temple from um, the building of the first temple to the conditional prophecy that was given by the Lord, that if you abide in me and you do right, then the temple will remain. 
If you disobey me and you go after false gods, I'll remove you from the land and destroy the temple. And we saw there that prophecy fulfilled some 300 years later with the destruction of the first temple. We saw the building of the second temple. And now Jesus prophesies the destruction of that temple because once again, Israel has fulfilled the conditional prophecy of falling away from the Lord. So the Lord will chasten them. The fulfillment of this took place in 70 AD as we spoke of in some detail last week. And now it says in verse 3, Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, just opposite the temple, just a stone's throw away, literally. And Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Peter, James, and John were sort of the inner circle of disciples. When Jesus wanted to take a smaller group into uh, some sort of situation, such as the Mount of Transfiguration, or certain rooms where he healed people, or other occasions, if he wanted to take just sort of his inner core group, it was Peter, James, and John. Not that he favored them. The New Testament says very clearly, and it's taught throughout the Old Testament, that God is no respecter of persons. It's not as though these were his favorite buddies and he showed favoritism to them. But because of the ministry prepared for them from before the beginning of time, Christ had to invest in them differently. Peter would go on to be the pillar of the church. James would be the first martyr in the church. And John would go on to uh, live to a very old age and write more New Testament books than anyone other than the Apostle Paul, including the book of Revelation. These guys had a tremendous ministry laid out for them. Therefore, Jesus invested in them tremendously. I see this happening in our church, in our community. I see young people in our church that Jesus has put on a fast track of growth. They're growing spiritually and rightly like a, a, a well-nourished plant or tree. And God is just pouring in and pouring in and showing them secret things and wonderful things and revealing the word to them and using them powerfully and giving them opportunities. And if God is doing that in their lives, it's because he's prepared a ministry for them from before the foundations of the world. God prepared the good works that we're to do beforehand that we should walk in them, according to Ephesians 2.10. See God doing that with some of you. Some of you young people are like Peter and James and John. Jesus is investing in you. And that means the future for you. As the Lord tarries until he comes, it's going to be gnarly, as it was for James and John and Peter. Andrew kind of snuck in the back door. Andrew's never kind of in the inner circle. I think if it was four, it probably would have been Andrew. Uh, but Andrew's here at the Mount of Olives. And it says that they come to him privately now. They, they ask him for a private prophetic briefing. They ask him these questions in verse four. Tell us, when will these things be, speaking of the destruction of the temple, what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Now, I told you earlier in the, in the last couple of weeks that Matthew chapter 24 is a parallel, parallel to Mark 13, and it gives us more detail. We see a fuller uh, display of the questions that they asked in Matthew 24, verse 3. It says that they said, tell us, when will these things be, destruction of the temple, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So three distinct questions. When will the temple be destroyed? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? It's interesting that Jesus more or less ignored the first question. He didn't answer that one explicitly. He didn't really give them the timing, though in Luke chapter 21, which is your homework, he gives them a little bit of a clue there that when they see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then Israel will be scattered and the time of the Gentiles will begin. Luke 21, the parallel account, gives you a little more detail. But what the Lord does is he capitalizes upon the opportunity to give us a broad picture of the events 
the situations and the world conditions that would exist just prior to his second coming. So he really focuses on the second and third question here in Mark chapter 13. But with regards to the first question, we're given a little clue about the rest of the chapter. The prophecy of the temple being destroyed, we know it's a matter of history that it happened in 70 AD. It's not even a question. It happened in 70 AD, and it was an exact fulfillment of what Jesus said. Remember last week, uh, we noted that Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. When the Romans came, the 10th Roman legion under Titus Vespasian to destroy Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, they burned the city and they burned the temple. They weren't necessarily planning on knocking the stones of the temple over. In their minds, it was sufficient to burn it. But the gold that was within and without the temple melted and went down between these giant stones. And so the Romans, wanting the gold, of which there was much, dismantled it stone by stone, knocked it down. You can still see some of those stones today on the south end of the Temple Mount. We'll go there in December. And uh, literally, perfectly fulfilled what Jesus said to the T. Now, that gives us a clue about how to interpret the rest of the chapter. If the first prophecy that Jesus gave was literally, physically, actually, and completely fulfilled, then we would expect the rest of the prophecies by logic to be literally, actually, physically, and completely fulfilled. Not spiritually, not esoterically, not allegorically, but literally, physically, and completely And so look what he says is going to happen in verses 5 through 13. And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And when they arrest you and deliver you, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all on account of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. Now, as I said previously, these are, Jesus is revealing to us here, the events the situations and the world uh, conditions that will proceed and coincide with his second coming in the end of the age. Remember the chart that I gave you two weeks ago and asked you to bring back every week? Pull out that chart if you have it. If not, we have it on PowerPoint, sort of a simplified form of that chart. And I want to show you on this prophetic the timeline, the, the time in which, or about which Jesus is talking. Here's a simplified version of your chart. Oh, you like my pointer? Little red dot, see that? So fun. On the far left, we have the first coming of Christ to the earth. There is the cross, meaning the cross. And then this period here from the cross or just after, really, Pentecost is the church age. From the church age to the rapture of the church is when the Bible teaches 
that there is the age of grace or the time of the Gentiles or the church age. Beyond that, after the rapture of the church, and if you have questions about that, we'll talk about it two weeks from today. After the rapture of the church is the tribulation period, which culminates or ends in the second coming of Christ to earth that happens at the time of the battle of Armageddon and then the millennial kingdom as we've spoken of. The prophecies that Jesus gives us today have to do primarily with the time from the birth of the church to the rapture of the church. Though we do see some of the things that he's speaking of uh, exacerbated or really happening to a a greater degree in the tribulation period. But he's warning us about this time right here. He wants us to be aware about that period of history in which we are living. And some of the things that he said there are... are, um, sort of frightening, you know, sort of radical things that he said there. And you read passages like this, and this is why sometimes people are afraid of Bible prophecy. But understand, the Lord did not tell us these things that we might be afraid. He is not a God of confusion, nor is he a God of fear. His perfect love casts out fear. It's not why he told us these things. And if they cause fear in your heart or or intrepidation when you study uh, Bible prophecy, you might just want to bring your heart before the Lord and say, Lord, I Maybe that's not right. I I shouldn't be afraid of these things. You have a wonderful plan. You're going to unfold it perfectly. You're going to complete my salvation, and you're going to set all things right. Yes, there's some hard times between now and then, but God, you're faithful, and you're going to work it all together for good. So, Lord, let there not be this fear in my heart. That's how your, your heart ought to be excited about Bible prophecy. It's God pulling back the veil in time to show you something good. And Bible prophecy shows us that he knows the beginning from the end and that he is absolutely in control, that he is working it toward a goal which is right and good, and that he will accomplish the fullness of our salvation. It's like the disciples. Remember when Jesus said to them, get in the boat and go to the other side? That was a prophetic statement when he said, go to the other side. In other words, Jesus knew that they would arrive to the other side, but he didn't tell them all the details of what would take place in between. And then they get out on the boat and they get out in the water and stuff got a little hairy. It got a little out of control. It's a little scary out on the water. But isn't it comforting for us some 1900 years later to read that all the while Jesus was sitting up on the mountain watching and praying, and at the right moment, he came walking on the water to rescue them. He walked right on top of the very circumstances that seemed to threaten their life. But remember, he told them, go to the other side. In other words, they would get there. And so it is with Bible prophecy. God will accomplish everything that is right and good. He will bring us to the other side. He will accomplish his judgment. Everything will be set in its right place. But our job In the meantime, as the world gets a little hairy and a little scary, is to have faith, to know that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. And at the appointed time, he will come walking, literally, on the earth, on the very thing that seems so out of control, so threatening. Jesus will walk on it, touching down at the Mount of Olives, and set all things right. He says in verse 7 of our text, do not be afraid. Don't be frightened. You'll hear wars and rumors of wars, but don't be frightened. He says on verse 9, be on your guard, but not be on the guard in the sense that you need to be afraid, but be ready instead of be afraid. In fact, he says in verse 11, do not be anxious. And he says in verse 13, that the one who perseveres to the end or endures to the end will be saved. Concerning these things that he tells us, the one that endures to the end will be saved. 
It's not a, a statement concerning salvation. It's not a salvific statement. It's not as though it's a condition for our salvation that we've got to endure the events of the end time. That's not what's taught here. He's simply saying, as the Bible says over and over again, that our job as the world gets difficult and life gets difficult is to persevere is to trust in God and know that he will rescue the righteous at the right time. It's called the rapture of the church. And so we're to know that God always gives us those words concerning difficult times. In fact, in John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus was talking there again about some prophetic things. He was telling the disciples about the future. And he said, these things I have told you that you might have peace. And then he tells them, In the world, you will have tribulation. In the world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The things that I tell you before they take place, I'm telling you that you might have peace. So that when they happen, you'll say, oh, the Lord said it would happen. He's in control. Everything's cool. But he warns us, in this world, you're going to have difficult times. But take heart. He has overcome the world. He will deliver us. He will save us. He will accomplish it at the right time. But that's a promise that this world is going to be difficult. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that has submitted itself to the influence of Satan. We live under the, um, the outfall or the um, consequences of sinful man and our actions which are against God. In this world, you will have trouble, he said. But take heart, he's overcome the world. It says a similar thing in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, speaking there about suffering and enduring trials. He says, after you have suffered for a little while, inheriting that statement is God's going to let you go through stuff. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That is a prophetic statement. God has called you to eternal glory. He hasn't saved you to let you slip out of his hands. He hasn't saved you to let it all fall or crumble at some point. He has called you to his eternal glory. Therefore, he will accomplish it. But after you've suffered a little while, the God of grace, who's given us great promises concerning eternity, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In this world, you're going to have trouble. And sometimes we say, God, where are you? And the answer is, I'm right here. I'm seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for you. Lo, I will never leave you, even until the end of the age. But for your growth, I will allow you to suffer for a little while. And then at the right time, I myself, the Lord says in 1 Peter 5.10, will strengthen, confirm, and establish you. God himself will come to you as he did those men on the road to Emmaus. There they were, downcast, all their hopes seemingly dashed, and walking away from Jerusalem with their hearts broken. And the Lord himself met them on that road. He didn't send a delegation. He didn't send an ambassador or representative. Didn't even send an angel, though that would have been cool enough. But the Lord himself. And so it says concerning the rapture of the church, that at the trump of God, the Lord himself will descend. And we will be caught up in the sky to meet him. And so we will ever be with the Lord. But before the rapture of the church, the world gets a little hairy. And that's what Jesus is talking about right here. These things are happening in our midst. Verse 7. He says, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be frightened. Those things must take place, but that's not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. Jesus said this in a time of relative world peace, Pax Romana, of course, the Roman Empire. But shortly after, the world would be engulfed in war. And since that time, there's been about 15,000 world conflicts. 
But we know from history that the last century, the 20th century, we're now in the 21st, in case you didn't know, the 20th century, we know from history, was the bloodiest century in the history of the world. More wars, more conflicts, more destruction than any other century. It began with World War I. In June of 1914, the Archduke of Austria, Prince Francis, was assassinated, was killed by a Serbian zealot in the same area where today UN peacekeeping troops are stationed there to keep the Serbs and the Croatians from killing each other. In that same place, the Austrian prince was assassinated by a Serbian zealot in June of 1914. One month later, Austria declared war on Serbia. And then they were followed by every nation in the world except for seven. That was unprecedented in world history. Historians used to call it the Great War until World War II, and then they called it World War I. But many students of Bible prophecy see that that's a direct fulfillment of what is spoken of in verse 8. Nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom this last century was started with that very thing taking place. At the close of the century, we realized that it was the bloodiest century the world has ever seen. In the year 2000 alone, 100,000 men and women died in the world's conflicts. In that year alone, that many people died in wars. In the year 2000, the UN had 14 ongoing peacekeeping missions using 28,000 uh, troops in, from 38 different countries. Interestingly enough, that increased threefold from 1999. In our world today, there are over 400,000 scientists who are, um, their sole employment is to develop new weapons or improve current weaponry. Wars and rumors of wars. How about this one from UNICEF, the United Nations International Children's Emergency Fund. They report that governments now spend more in four days preparing for war than in a year helping their neighbors. The annual budget of UNICEF is $75 million. Compared with $125 million it is spent to build one modern submarine. A little fact about nuclear weapons. Presently, there are enough nuclear bombs in existence to equal 1.3 million Hiroshima explosions. The UN reports that the world's nuclear arsenals contain enough explosives to blast every man, woman, and child off the earth with the equivalent of 15 tons of TNT each. One nuclear submarine carries more explosive force than all the bombs and all the ammunition exploded by all the nations in World War II. Wars and rumors of wars. Jesus said that that would characterize even just be prevalent, maybe define the last days. Now, those things ought not to frighten you. Right after saying that, Jesus says in verse 7, do not be frightened. He says, this is not yet the end. The end of the world is not going to be in some nuclear exchange. The Bible doesn't teach that. That's very clear. It's not going to be how it ends. He also goes on to say in the second part of verse 8 that there will be earthquakes in various places and there will also be famines. Earthquakes and famines. Now, from the beginning, there's always been earthquakes. There's earthquakes in the Old Testament, and we'll see that there's going to be earthquakes in the book of Revelation, some very profound ones, some real God-shaking happening. There's always been earthquakes. 
But it's interesting that Jesus said that the last days would be characterized by earthquakes. That might suggest to us that there's going to be some sort of change in, in maybe the frequency of the earthquakes, maybe the magnitude of the earthquakes. Uh, he says here in various places, so maybe they'll be happening in a wider range of geographical locations. But by the fact that he brings this up, earthquakes will be a characteristic of the last days. It means that there's going to be something that we can see, some way that we can judge and say, oh, okay, the last days. I have for you some statistics, some facts here from the National Earthquake Information Center. I don't vouch for their validity. Uh, you know how statistics and facts are. You could always find one to contradict it. But if you go to their website, the National Earthquake Information Center, they have charts there, and it'll tell you that in 1970, they um, recorded 4,139 earthquakes. Ten years later, in 1980, they recorded 7,348. It almost doubled. Ten years later, 1990, it more than doubled to 16,612 earthquakes around the world. And in the year 2000, 22,256. So there may be an increase in earthquakes. Maybe this data is inaccurate. I don't know, but you know what? It doesn't matter. Because Jesus simply said, in the last days, there will be earthquakes in various places. And they must happen in some sort of way that defines it as being different from the history that's gone before us. Tsunami was very interesting. The earthquake that caused that and the subsequent ones. I want you to understand those. We talk about these things. That Jesus does not say that in the last days, he will cause these things to happen. He doesn't say that. He says, in the last days, these will simply be the world events and conditions and situations. It's not as though God is causing the wars or causing the earthquakes or causing the famines. He's simply saying that that day will be characterized by it. We live in a world that has fallen, that is out of control, that is in rebellion to God, that lies in the prince of the power of the air, according to the New Testament, who is Satan. So bad things happen in this world, but take heart. He has overcome the world's. He then mentioned that there would be famines. A few um, somewhat current statistics. 790 million people in the world suffer from malnutrition. Now I'm told that that has decreased in the last 30 years or so. That's good to know. But Jesus said in the last days, famines. He didn't say they would increase or there would be more or less. He just said famines. Another uh, fact, in spite of record high food production, more people go hungry than ever before, is what this one says. The UN Food and Agricultural Organization reported that 460 million people are at the brink of starvation daily. Some 200 million children yearly slip into some form of mental retardation and blindness due to lack of food. That's so appalling with what we spend on military things. I'm not making any political statements, but gee whiz, feed some people. Uh, the next one is the WHO, not the band, but the World Health Organization. Estimates that about 4 million people a year die of starvation. About 30 people every minute. Again, Jesus didn't say he'd cause these things in the last days, but these would be happening before his coming. But he says in the last part of verse 8 that these things are merely birth pangs. That the end is not yet. That those aren't the defining marks of the very end of time. There's more that would happen. They're merely birth pangs. But birth pangs signal that something is coming. When a woman goes into labor, she's having birth pangs. She's having contractions and she's having pain. The child is not yet birth, but it is on its way. Those are a sure sign that the child is on the way. 
These things are a sure sign that the Lord is on his way. Birth pangs, he called them. And then in verses 9 through 13, he talks about persecution. He says in verse 9, Be on your guard because you will be delivered up to the courts for my name's sake. He says in verse 11, They will deliver you up, but don't be anxious because the Holy Spirit will give you utterance as to what to say. We see that in the book of Acts. We see that in church history. And you can see that in modern history. I recommend to you a book called The Heavenly Man. The Heavenly Man documents part of the church in China for the last two decades up to the year 2000. And you can't believe what's gone on in China. You see, Jesus said that the last days would be characterized by persecution. The church would be persecuted. And we read about the early church being persecuted. You may have read, if you're a Christian and you have not read, you must read Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is an account of martyrs from the book of Acts all the way up until the year 2000. And if you get the updated version, you ought to read Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's sobering. gives you a correct perspective. It changes your life a little bit. But Jesus said in the world, there'd be a lot of persecution happening. Now in America, this is alien to us. We, we don't experience much real persecution here. Once in a while, someone at school says, dude, you're lame. Christian club is a bunch of dorks. And we're like, ha, persecution. <laughs> or someone at work says, oh, Christians are all hypocrites and we're feeling persecuted. We're eating our lunch alone and everything. And that's... I don't know that's the kind of persecution Jesus was talking about. But please, in the name of Jesus, as Christians who are in America, you have a responsibility. The Lord said, to whom much is given, much will be required. So I think we have a responsibility to educate ourselves with regards to the church worldwide. And if you look at the church in China, you see unbelievable persecution and murder happening for faith in Jesus Christ. Look Look at a place like Somalia or look at the Sudan or look at Indonesia, or look at Korea, or look at Taiwan, or look at Saudi Arabia, or look at India. Look at a whole host of nations, and you will see that in this modern day, Christians are being killed for their belief in Jesus Christ. Not mocked, not just disenfranchised, murdered, killed, beheaded for their belief in Jesus Christ. If that doesn't do something to your heart, your heart's hard. You need to ask the Lord about your heart. Those are our brothers and sisters in Christ who are losing their life for the faith daily. I'm not condemning anybody because we're all in the same boat here. We're all church in America. We're wealthy and we're blessed with a lot of things. But it does not give us a license for ignorance. Instead, it gives us a responsibility to action. To whom much is given, much is required. We know that people are persecuted for their faith today. Verse 10 And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. I want to read to you some encouraging facts and statistics I have about the gospel going forth. Uh, Some up-to-date information says one of every 10 people on the planet is of the Bible-reading, Bible-believing stream of Christianity. That's cool. One in 10. Every nine people that you encounter evangelize them. The number of believers in what used to be, listen to this, the number of believers in what used to be mission fields now surpasses the number of believers in the country from which missionaries were originally sent. 
That means that there has been some success in historic missionary endeavors. That there's more Christians in those nations that we used to send missionaries to than there are over here now on a per capita basis. In fact, more missionaries are now sent from non-Western churches than from traditional mission-sending bases in the West. Lord, send some missionaries from Africa over here. Some missionaries from China over here. Some missionaries from Saudi Arabia over here. The Protestant growth rate in Latin America, those becoming Protestant Christians in Latin America, is well over three times the biological growth rate. There's more people getting saved in Latin America than there are being born. (laughs) That's cool. Protestants in China grew from about 1 million to over 80 million believers in less than 50 years. Now, from 1 million to over 80 million believers in 50 years. To give you some perspective, in that same 50-year period, the church in America grew less than 1%. In the 1980s, Nepal was still a staunch Hindu kingdom with only a small persecuted church. Today, there are hundreds of thousands of believers and churches have been started within each of the more than 100 distinct people groups in Nepal. Isn't that exciting? The gospel is going forth into the world, but now some sobering stuff. There are over 2 billion people that are yet to be reached. There are people groups in whose, in whose dialect the, the Bible has not yet been translated. There are people who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. And what I want to ask you today, church, is what are you going to do about it? It says that a sign of the last days to be in the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. What are you going to do about the nations? Do you have a heart for the nations? If not, ask the Lord. Because, you see, God has a heart for the nations. Salvation is for the nations. God is concerned with all of them, not just America. America isn't even in the Bible. Many other nations are. God has a heart for the nations. Do you? If you do, that reflects the Lord. If not, ask the Lord. Lord, what should my heart for the nations be? Because I believe that every Christian should be involved in missions, either as one who is going or one who is sending. Let me lay a heavy trip upon you now. You, if you're not a believer, don't even listen. God bless you. Just listen, but you don't care. But if you are a Christian... You have got to be engaged in missions, somehow engaged in the Great Commission, not just here at home sharing the Lord. Yes, absolutely. But to the nations, you should either be one who is going or one who is sending people. Do you have a heart? Is some sort of nation on your heart? Is your heart stirred for some place? Ask God. Say, God, would you send me? Here I am. We currently have in our fellowship here uh, people looking at 20 different nations. Different people, up to 20 different nations that they're praying about going to. That's the Lord doing stuff. What about you? Lord, would you send me somewhere? Now, if the answer is no, I'm not going to send you, then you are to be a sender. That is, you are to provide spiritual and financial, logistical, practical help for those who are called. You've got to be engaged in sending If you send someone to some place as a missionary, you're laying up treasure in heaven just the same as they are. 
And when the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ comes, and they receive rewards for the salvation and the work of the gospel that took place in that country, you who sent will be part in that reward. You'll be receiving as well. You lay up treasure in heaven. But don't let that be your only motivation. Let hell be your motivation. But everyone has got to be either sent or a sender. If you're in this church, you have an opportunity to be a sender. We have several missionaries on the field right now. We have many more that are preparing to go out. You can support financially. You can love them and care for them and write to them and send them goodies, as Pastor G would say. And, but you've either got to be sent or a sender. It's part of the commission. It's part of the call. What are you going to do about all the nations hearing the gospel? If you do nothing, you do nothing. You're not a doer of the word. If you do something, you're participating in the building of the kingdom of God. There's nothing more fruitful that you could do with your time. I want to go back up to verses 5 and 6 now. I wanted to end with those because they're extremely important. I wanted to end with them, but Jesus started with them. The first thing that Jesus said in response to their questions about the end times, the first thing from his lips were in verse 5, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. See to it that nobody misleads you. Out of love, out of concern, out of a shepherd's and a father's heart, Jesus says, be careful. See to it that you don't get tricked in the last days. The last days will be characterized, and this is all throughout the New Testament, will be characterized by spiritual deception by false doctrines and false teaching from without the church and from within the church. And Jesus Christ here wants his disciples to be alert, to be aware, to see to it that they are not misled. The antonym for that phrase, see to it in Greek, is to make blind. If you don't give some effort to this, seeing to it that you're not deceived, then you're allowing yourself to be made blind. There comes here a sense of responsibility. It wasn't a suggestion. Hey, Jesus, what about the end times in your coming? Well, guys, I suggest that you don't get tricked and fooled. I mean, don't, don't bother yourselves too much, but think about, you know, not being misled. I didn't say that. Very strong language. See to it that nobody misleads you because the last days will be characterized by deception from within the church and from without the church. Look at 1 Timothy 4.1. have it on PowerPoint for you. Very interesting language here. Paul writes to Timothy and says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Radical language. First thing, the Spirit explicitly says, I don't recall where Paul uses that language anywhere else. I might be wrong. I just can't think of it right now. I think this might be the only time. The Spirit explicitly says, in other words, God is so concerned that we're aware about this. What does it mean to be explicit? Uh, it, it simply means to have something clearly stated and to leave nothing implied. Make no mistake, the Spirit of God wants you to know that in latter times, these days, some will fall away from the faith because, we're given the answer, because they paid attention to, they tampered with, they listened to, Deceitful spirits and doctrines, plural, of demons. In the New Testament, there is one doctrine. That is the doctrine of grace. We are saved by faith through, by grace through faith. 
But demons have multiple doctrines. It manifests itself primarily in the ideology and in the false religious idea that many ways lead to God. This is so prevalent, especially in our area. The New Testament, I'm in the New Testament, Lord help me. Uh, the New Age movement is uh, very strong in Santa Barbara area, very prevalent. Many people who believe in it. There's churches in Santa Barbara that are New Age churches. Here's how they're dangerous. They'll talk about Jesus. They'll say, Jesus was great. Oh, Jesus, he was wonderful. He was a great prophet, amazing teacher. He was wonderful. Oh, yeah, we love the Lord. But they're not talking about the same Lord. They're not talking about the Jesus Christ of the Bible. Nor do they worship him as God incarnate. They don't adhere to the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. But they have listened to doctrines of demons. The demons come along and say, there's got to be more than one way because they want to defame Jesus. They want to destroy the name of Jesus. They want to mar the image of Jesus. They mar and beat and maim and destroy humanity. And they say that there are multiple ways to be saved. That is a lie from the pit of hell. It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. No one ever offered to die for you and predicted his own resurrection from the dead other than Jesus Christ. He is the only unique savior of the world. If you don't believe in that, you can't be saved. Let me clarify. If you're a Christian and you've already become a Christian or, or you think you are and you somehow decide in your um, reading of the Bible or your investigation of religions that there's got to be more than one way to Jesus Christ, then you were never saved. Because the Bible says in Romans 10, 9, that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Confess that Jesus is Lord, meaning that he is the master of the creation and of the universe meaning he is God. And believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, meaning he is God's only unique son, that he is the only unique savior, you shall be saved. Now, people can come to Jesus in ignorance. Many people get saved all the time, not understanding fully the doctrine of grace or the things of the cross or the deity of Christ. They haven't worked that out before they get saved. They just know, I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. He's the savior. Save me. And they're saved. But if someone claims to be a Christian and they somehow decide, well, I think there's other ways, and they profess that, I don't care what Christian leader they are, they are not saved. There is one way. There is one way, and he is Jesus Christ. And any other idea is called doctrines of demons, and it's given by deceitful spirits, according to this passage. It's interesting in verse 6. Jesus said, many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. He said that there will be many people in the last day claiming to be Christ, now, if you understand the idea in the Bible of Christ, Christ is a Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach. You know that nobody could be the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Christ, except for Jesus. He's the only one that fulfilled the prophecies. And yet a Syracuse University professor who researched the contemporary religious situation in America announced that there are over 2,000 practicing gurus who call themselves Christ. In America, welcome to the last days. Over 2,000 practicing gurus that call themselves Christ. Now, it's nonsensical, it's stupid, it's unbelievable, because first of all, the Messiah had to be a Jew. Second of all, he had to be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. He had to grow up in Nazareth of Galilee. He had to fulfill all those prophecies. Anybody who called themselves Christ is dumb. And yet, people are doing it. And people are believing themselves to be Christ, to be a Messiah. 
And people are following that. There are people in our community that are following false messiahs today. And that has come from demons. And how do we, how do we combat the lie? We combat it with the truth with the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. And when the church gathers, it is not just a gathering of Christians. It is a declaration of war on the kingdom of darkness, that we are going to learn truth, we are going to stand in truth, and we are going to proclaim truth, and we are going to tear down every lofty speculation that exalts itself against the knowledge of God through prayer by praying the truth and speaking the truth. Amen? We've got to do it, saints. We've got to do it. We're living in the last days. are characterized by deception. It's in the church. It's even in the leadership. A survey taken of 520 clergy and laymen of the National Council of Churches showed that only a little over half believe Jesus to be divine. Only 62% believe in an afterlife. McCall Magazine took a survey of 3,000 Protestant clergymen The article stated that a considerable number rejected altogether the idea of a personal God and a majority of the youngest group cannot be said to believe in a virgin birth or to regard Jesus as divine. Don't call it Christianity. It's in the pastors, it's in the leadership. According to a survey, 51% of Methodist pastors do not believe in the physical and literal resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 35% of Presbyterian pastors do not believe in Christ's resurrection from the dead. 33% of Baptist pastors and 30% of Episcopalian pastors do not believe in Jesus' literal resurrection from the dead. And yet Paul the Apostle wrote to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then we of all people in the world are the most to be pitied because our faith is in vain and there is no hope for eternity if Jesus Christ did not rise literally and physically from the dead. And yet there are leaders within the church today who are denying that doctrine. Don't call it the church. Don't call it Christianity. There is no hope. We're wasting our time here if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Saints, we are called to defend the truth in these last days. Barna, Barna Research Group, took a poll of 601 randomly selected senior pastors representing some 50 denominations and showed that only 51% of the nation's pastors held to a biblical worldview. Only 51%? And you say, well, what's a biblical worldview? Well, they defined it on the survey. Here's what they said a biblical worldview was. That they would agree and embrace with the accuracy of the biblical teaching that the Bible is true. They would agree with the sinless nature of Jesus. They know in the literal existence of Satan. They believe in the omnipotence and omniscience of God and of salvation by grace alone and the personal responsibility to evangelize. Only 51% of senior pastors polled in America believed in these things, had a biblical worldview. That's despicable, that's unbelievable, that's almost unfathomable. Welcome to the last days. By the way, Barna went on to say that only 9% of people who categorize themselves as born again held a biblical worldview. Those are just the core essentials, not even all of them, just the core essentials of the historic Christian faith. If you reject those, don't call it Christianity. But the last days are characterized by deception. Second Peter chapter 2 says in verse 1, But false prophets also arose from among the people. 
He says here that in the biblical days past, false prophets, false teachers came from, without, came from within God's people. Just as there will also be false teachers among you, speaking of the church, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. And that portrays the statistics that we just looked at, denying the master who bought them. Men from within the church teaching untruths. It says in verse 2, And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you, that is the church, with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. In other words, God will judge false teachers in the church. It says in James chapter 3, verse 1, Let not many of you become teachers, because as such you will incur stricter judgment. And so listen. The last days will be characterized by doctrines of demons taught by people from without the church and even within the church as people are allured by those things, believe them, begin to teach them within the church. And we are told that there will arise people within the church who do not want to hear the truth anymore. Second Timothy chapter four, I'll read it to you, verses three and four. Second Timothy three and four. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. And so we have the church today. It's important that we are Bereans. You know what a Berean is? Turn to Acts 17. We'll look at it real quick. We'll end right here. I promise. I'm not just saying that. Sometimes I just say that. I'm just going to be honest. Sometimes I'm trying to buy time and I say, we're going to end right here, but we really will. Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, starting in verse 10. Acts 17, verse 10. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Where is Berea? I don't know. Get a map. And no, I'm sorry. That was kind of rude. I do know, but I can't explain. It's in Asia somewhere. Bible map. Look at it later. And when they arrived in Berea, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these, speaking of the Bereans, were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, or the last place that Paul and Silas had taught. Why were they more noble-minded? The Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. Why does the Spirit of God call those in Berea more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica? For they received the word with great eagerness. They wanted to hear what the Word of God had to say. They wanted to hear about the Messiah. But they were examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They were listening to the great Apostle Paul And when Paul was done teaching, at the end of the day, they would examine the Old Testament to see whether or not what Paul said lined up with the Word of God. And the Bible here does not say, how dare you doubt Paul the Apostle, those Bereans. The Bible says that they were right on and they were noble-minded for checking what this great teacher had to say against the Word of God. And so we ought to be. The Bible does not commend you for listening to a man. The Bible commends you for listening to the word of God. 
And so any Bible teaching that you hear, if it sounds fishy whatsoever or you just don't know, you need to open up the Word of God and investigate and see that what a preacher or teacher or pastor says lines up with the Word of God. If it does not, reject him and reject the ministry and move on and find a ministry that does teach the Word of God. This goes for me and anyone who fills this pulpit and this church. Anything that is taught here, you need to hold it up against the Word of God. And may the word of God testify against us if we ever depart from it. And so we need to be Bereans. Look what the result was in verse 12. Many of them therefore believed, along with a number of prominent Greek men and women. They examined the scriptures. They wanted to see if it was really true. And it says the result was that many of them believed. Here's the problem with Christians today. Christians are afraid that if they really examine the Christians or or the, the scriptures, that they will be let down. That's what so many think. Out of ignorance, they think, I, oh, I want to believe the Bible. I'm not sure it's going to stand up. I'm afraid to dig too deep because I might find a contradiction. If you do, let me know. You'll be the first person in history. I might find some error. I might find that the whole thing is a sham. The Bible is not afraid of you. If you have questions, it is not a sin to have questions. What you do with those questions determines whether it's a sin or an act of faith. If you just let those questions dwell in your mind, the enemy is sure to come and add lies to those questions and deception to those questions. In these last days, that will happen. If you don't do something about your questions concerning the Christian faith and the validity of Jesus Christ and the validity of the Bible, then you're in sin and you open yourself up to the influence of the enemy. If you have questions and you do something such as investigate the word of God, then that is a commendable act of faith, not something that God is afraid of. (laughs) They're auditing us. Investigation. Close the books. No, God wants to open the book. He wants you to see that every single word of it is true. In this last generation, Josh McDowell was a great young mind. And he didn't believe that the New Testament was valid. And so being a law student, he wanted to disprove it. He investigated it thoroughly and he got saved. And he is now a great defender of the faith with numerous books to his credits. In the last century, early on, Sir William Ramsey was a historian of highest esteem. And he saw that in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, that Luke claimed historicity for those books. He claimed to be giving a historical account of things that went on. And so he said, I don't believe that Luke was a historian or that these things are historical. And so being the great historian and archaeologist that he was, he went on a journey of the places recorded in Luke and he investigated the events. And at the end of his journey, he said, Luke is the greatest historian the world has ever known and every word of the New Testament is true. And he became a great defender of the faith. The Bible is not afraid of you. The Bible is not afraid of you. Investigate it. Be educated in these last days. I'm told that certain government agencies in training their employees to spot counterfeit $100 bills train them by giving them real $100 bills and forcing them to study every single aspect of those bills. The employees inevitably ask, okay, so where's the fake ones? They never show them a fake $100 bill. They want them to be so acquainted with the real thing, so studied in the real thing, to know it so surely that when the false comes across their eyes, they know it in an instance. And so it ought to be with you in the Word of God. You have a wonderful gift and responsibility 
to study the word of God, to know it so well that when doctrines of demons come into our community, into our lives, into our families, in the midst of our friends and try to creep in our church, we know the truth in an instant. We could stand up and we could tear down every lofty speculation that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Let 2 Timothy 2.15 be your life verse. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman that need not be ashamed, but handles accurately the word of truth. I want the Lord to make this church a church that labors in the word of God and loves the God of the word. Labors in the word of God and loves the God of the word. Amen.